I wonder if you've ever been at a party and found that by no, partic no particularly good reason you find yourself near the corner of the room and someone is walking towards you and with a sinking heart you greet them and they start talking to you and they are delighted. They are thrilled to find someone who will listen. You, um, of course, you don't have a choice because you're in the corner of the room looking for the exits and you're really not interested in what it is that they are so passionate about. I guess something like it has happened to all of us. We feel claustrophobic. We want to get out. We feel hemmed in. And if I'm honest, that's how I felt a little when I started looking at uh, chapter 6 of Romans. Would you please open it? Page 1100, uh, mostly 1133. I wonder how you reacted when you heard the passage read. Perhaps you said to yourself, oh, not, not, not heard that person reading before in church. You heard words floating around, death, resurrection, sin, and your mind floated off because it's not a famous bit. Daniel stole all our thunder by telling you the famous bit from chapter 8 a little later on. We all know that, or lots of us know that, but I doubt if many of us know chapter 6. And whenever I find a passage of scripture difficult in that way, if I find myself reading it and thinking, oh golly, why did I put myself down for this? Then I ask, why not? Why do I find it tedious? Paul is talking of the death and life of Jesus Christ, the death and life of me. He tells me I'm under grace and not law. Why is it so hard to get worked up as I suspect I should be? Well, I can only assume it's because I've missed something. That is what I assumed, because I assume God's word isn't meant to feel like someone pigeonholing you in a corner and leaving you feeling there's no escape. And I found an answer by thinking about the purpose of the whole letter. Paul says he is writing, this is at the beginning, he says he's writing out of an awareness of his place in God's mission to bring all peoples everywhere to what he calls the obedience of faith, or the obedience that is faith. Now, if that's true, if that's what Paul was about, and if this is part of that, then this would be more like being at a party and having someone throw open the windows and offer a huge panoramic view. Maybe that's in my mind, because, as you probably know, Sparks in the Park was on... Uh, at Earlham Park last night, we are tremendously privileged in uh, having a big house that's set high on a hill and has a flat roof. And so we have free access each year to the Sparks in the Park programme. Uh, and we, we sit and we take sometimes hot drinks. This year we took camping chairs. We've never done chairs before. That was quite, a, quite, quite something. But there is this huge panoramic view from the top of our house. And actually, having spent some time in it, Romans 6 feels to me more like that than it does now like being constrained 
at a party. This is about God's purposes for all people everywhere. And it's my hope that I can help us all see at least a bit of that view this evening. So can we pray together? Dear God, you have determined from all eternity loving, holy purposes for the people that you've created, despite the worst that we've thrown at you. And we pray that we may be caught up in some measure into the the wonder of what it is you've done for us as we gather this evening in front of your word. May these purposes excite us insofar as they're true for us, but not just true for us, true for many beyond these walls. In Jesus' name, amen. Now we do have to look at some detail. So this is going to be a bit kind of Bible geeky uh, for a while. Not much I can do about that, because, but, because it, it, it does kind of have a, a shape to it, um, and it's good to follow it. Chapter 5 and verse 19 tells us that this section is about sin and righteousness and obedience. Well, then, according to verse 20, if you were uh, here last week, you'll have heard about this from Jonathan. Uh, According to verse 20, the Jewish law is added, and it makes things worse. The law was added so that the trespass might increase. We're going to hear more about that later in other chapters. I'm not going to dwell on it. And then after that, as uh, sin increased because of the work of the law, then grace increased, according to verse 20 and 21. So the question at the start of chapter 6 is simply a matter of logic. Shall we continue to sin? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Grace is a good thing, Paul. So if we're going to have more grace, surely the best way of making sure that we can have lots and lots of grace is to have lots and lots of sin. Well, it won't surprise you that the answer is no. We're going to get an explanation of the no. But first of all, I want us to notice what kind of question and answer this is going to be. It's understandable that we might think all this is really about the question that gets to us, which is why I kind of, to a degree, wanted us to to deal with it and park it at the beginning of the service. The question, why did I sin again? What are you up to, God? Why do I struggle to stop sinning? But that's not the question. On the contrary, the question can be framed like this. Look, why not just relax about it all? Don't worry. Be happy. Sin doesn't matter because grace has got it sorted. And so we have to be careful to let Paul's answer to his question be the answer to his question and not to our question. Our question will matter and it's going to come later. So these are the kind of answers that Paul is wanting to give. Firstly, verse 3. There's absolutely no way in this kind of thing, I'm afraid, that I can find letters with which to begin three uh, simple points. So you'll just have to follow it as we go along. Verse 3. Baptism is baptism into Christ. Don't you know that all of us who were baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? Of course, the norm in those days and increasingly as people come to faith in adult life now, 
is that people were coming to faith as first-generation believers. They could speak of a before and an after in their life of faith. Nothing magic at all in any circumstances about baptism. That would be absurd because Paul spent so long going on about the life of faith earlier on. But it is the marker. Baptism is the marker of faith. And the way in which it marks it, and this may surprise us, is not simply that we might think, well, it's a symbol. Not according to verse 3. According to verse 3, the, and I assume it's a shorthand, not just baptism, but the process that is coming to faith and the baptism that marks it, means you are baptized into Christ. That's a remarkably dramatic language, isn't it? You are set into him. You are united with him. Not as a... Um, with a bond that you can say, change your mind about two weeks later. The emphasis that Paul is making here is that we are, we are put into union with Jesus Christ in the process that is faith and baptism and all that goes with it. So why would you carry on sinning if what's happened is you have been placed into Jesus Christ in some way? Now, I haven't a clue what that means either. I mean, yes, I have, actually, because I've you know, spent some time looking at the Bible. But it, it's not what he's focusing on here. He is actually simply making the claim and leaving it to us to kind of say, it's more of a wow thing. Just, just let yourselves be blown away by the fact that whatever else we say, you have been placed inside Jesus Christ. Then secondly, in verse 4, what that is itself about is baptism into Christ is into his death and his resurrection. Just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. In what sense were we baptized into Christ? Does it mean that we are converted and suddenly we all end up as carpenters? No. Does it mean that we all have long hair and beards? Probably not. Of all the things about Jesus Christ that he wants us to know when we're baptised into him, he wants us to know fundamentally that the way in which we are like that is that we're baptised into his death. We're going to focus on that in the next couple of verses. And as he rose, so we too have a new life. And then we, we go into some more detail because he's going to explain this and unpack what this is about. Our death and life are patterned on the death and life of Jesus. Now, uh, look at verse 12 for a moment. It's just to learn something. We're going to come back to verse, uh, verse 5, but come, look at verse 12. Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Well, if he is telling us not to let sin reign, he's implying we have a choice. So we know that whatever we're talking about with death and resurrection, one thing it cannot mean is this. Graham, you have been uh, baptised into the death of Jesus Christ, therefore rejoice because you know from now on you are completely without sin. Whatever it means, it doesn't mean that, sorry. Because otherwise verse 12 wouldn't be said. 
it would be, be a nonsense, it would be meaningless. And of course we know in our experience that we may be believers in Jesus Christ. We may reckon ourselves to be in Christ, and yet, that being so, we still know we sin. So what does it mean if we are uh, baptised into Jesus and his death? First of all, we have to sort out what does it mean that Jesus died to sin. If we've been united, this is verse 5, if we've been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified. Now, going on to verse 8, now if we died with Christ, verse 10, the death he died, he died to sin. What does it mean that Jesus died to sin? Well, we've died to sin in some way, but it's only because he has died to sin. And I want to suggest that it means this, that he died to sin in this way, that he bore sin's penalty, and that what that means is the penalty of sin is exhausted, it is completed, there is no further penalty to pay. Go on a little further into the chapter and you'll come to verse 23. Uh, And it says, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. When Paul in this letter, and in most of Paul, and there's a fair bit in the rest of the New Testament as well, is talking about death, it's not just uh, your cells decay and then you die. Not talking principally about death with that meaning to it, that physical death. Rather, it means death as the result of sin's entry into the world. It carries that kind of of weight to it, just as it does in verse 23 of chapter 6. Therefore, When Jesus dies to sin, what it's meaning is that he dies to all that sin causes in bringing death. What is that? Well, sin is the cause of death. Sin brings the penalty of death. So what Jesus has done by dying to sin is exhaust the penalty of sin, by actually doing the dying. Let's take a close look at verse 6. For we know that our old self was crucified with him. In other words, we shared in his death to sin. We shared in a death that was crucifixion. Second part of that verse. So that the body of sin might be done away with. Um, And there's a little A in my version at that point. I don't know if there is in yours. If you look to the bottom, it says rendered powerless. Well, we'll come on to that in a minute. But let's have a look at the body of sin for a moment. It's not the sin that used to be part of me. It's not sort of look around inside Alan Strange and say, well, perhaps the bit up to that knee was a bit dodgy. Um... And that arm isn't too good either. Therefore, put those bits together and that's the body of sin. It's not what it means. Not the sin that used to be part of me, but somehow isn't now. Rather, what it means is this. It's the whole of me insofar as I belonged to the order that used to be in charge where sin ruled my life. So it's not a physical body. But neither is it a a claim about where we are now. 
It is simply the whole self, the sinful self, as it belonged to the order that used to be in charge. That's the body of sin. It's what Jesus did. He was cruci- our self was crucified with him so that the body of sin, my body of sin, my old sinful self, might be done away with, or, according to the note, rendered powerless. It's an odd word. It means to cancel, to abolish, to do away with, to render ineffective. So it doesn't mean that I've been so separated from my past that, again, like I illustrated with the, by, by imposing on Graham for a moment, that it's so far in the distant past that it's completely irrelevant. You no need, need no longer take account of it. It's, it. it's not even there, really. God has simply tidied it and destroyed it. It's extinguished. That's not what it's saying. He's saying it's been rendered ineffective. You are still a complete person. But the power of sin and your sinful self has been done away with by the crucifixion of Christ. So that, still in verse 6, we should no longer be slaves to sin. The effect of this is that we're no longer slaves. Now what that adds up to in all that detail is this, and it's it's, uh, at the heart of uh, verses 7 through to 10. Anyone who has died has been freed from sin. We are free from sin, in the sense perhaps we could look at at verse 9. Since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. If death is the penalty for sin, and death has happened, almost like a capital D, because it was Jesus' death and us in him, then there's nothing else to do. The debt is paid. The offence is finished. The law is satisfied. Death has happened. Life is open. Death and perishing, according to St. Paul, are the result of sin and God's wrath. So if the death, almost like in capitals, has happened, all that is necessary is dealt with. And that means that life is now open for all of us, because death itself is done with. If that's the case, now we're moving towards verses 11 onwards. Regard yourselves in a particular way. Your former selves are dead. Score settled, debt paid, law satisfied. It is as though, and I I read of someone who put it in this way, it is as though there are two rooms and a door between them. You have gone from the one room through the door, gone into another, and uh, closed the door behind you. Or I suppose if you want to stay with the analogy, it would be better to say Jesus has closed the door behind you. There are two rooms, and you've moved from one to the other. Another way to say it would be your, your life has two volumes. The book of your life has two volumes. We have spoken here of volume one. It's there, it's real, but it no longer has the power to control you. That book has been closed. Paul says, now live in volume two. Now, the important thing, and this is where it starts to open up that panorama I spoke of, is that this was not even an option until God intervened with Jesus Christ in grace. 
Now, of course, anyone passing the street tonight can hope to be a better person. Anyone can have a bad day and make a a New Year's resolution. But I don't suppose I'm alone in being able to tell a story of grim struggling that drives me to frustration and sometimes makes me wonder, is the business of being a Christian worth it? But what we can take from this passage is this. That experience is the very signal that our hearts and minds do now have a choice that they used not to have. Let's face it, would you bother struggling against sin the way you actually do if you were not told that you were on the path of Christ? Why would anyone do it? Why would we go so far beyond trivial resolutions? Why would we work so hard and take so seriously the business of being a different kind of person unless we actually believed and were living out this truth that Paul is accepting here, that this volume is over. You have died to that. You are now to live, therefore, in volume two. Of course, you can live in volume one. It is absurd, but it is possible. Verse 11, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Count yourselves. May, uh, reckon that this, ha- that this which has actually happened has happened for you. You have a choice. You don't have to do that. You could do it otherwise. It would be absurd, but it is possible to live back in volume one. Don't, says Paul, verse 12, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. You do actually have a choice now, by the way. Do not let it. In volume one, there wasn't an option. That's how it was. Where are we going to find the kind of... um, fountain, the kind of spring of energy that helps us to live in volume two and to recognize that volume one is over and done with. This is where I think it really is quite difficult, this passage, because we find ourselves again now in an age where what matters is image, what matters is feeling, and this passage is unashamedly about our minds. Look at verse 3. We are to know that all of us baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Look at verse 6. For we know that our old self was crucified with him. Verse 11. In the same way, count yourselves... Recognize what you know, that we are alive to God in Christ. It's about what you know. It's your head that controls everything else. Now, I'm only going to touch lightly on verses 12 to 14 because that's, uh, it, it's about slavery and a lot of slavery issues come up next week. But don't live, this is the Paul urging us to live in volume two, not in volume one. Don't live letting sin rule you But, as verse 13 puts it, offer yourselves to God. 
Sin is not to be your master. In fact, it shall not be your master. But let's open things up a bit now as we finish. What was Paul's passion in writing this letter in the first place? Well, John Milton said when he wrote Paradise Lost that his concern was to justify the ways of God to man. What Paul is concerned to do is to take his readers through an understanding of there is a huge human problem. How are God's ancient people, the Jews, to move forward alongside these others who have come to a recognition of what God has now done, the Gentiles? How, how, can, we, how can we justify the ways of God? To his own people? How can we make it clear what God has been up to from all eternity? And so what Paul is doing is saying, look, let's face the fact that sin happened. Now, uh, chapters uh, 4 and 5, let's recognize the fact that the law came in. But let's recognize the problems that it brought. And as we move into chapter 6, let's not just recognize, but recognizing let us rejoice that grace has come and God is displaying thereby his righteous character, that he's got it sorted to the whole universe. God has acted to show his righteous character. To act in law, we'll get more about that in the next few weeks, but particularly now and effectively finally in grace. Grace works when nothing else could. And he wants to take us through how grace works so we get it into our heads that there isn't a kind of better option by looking backwards or by thinking maybe it could work another way. He wants us to understand Jesus Christ goes to the cross and he takes you with him and there is no other way for us to be saved. He knows, as he writes this, that we will from time to time be absolutely cast down by the fact of sin in our lives. And that struggle will be with us until we die. But he wants us to rejoice that we are not bound to sin, that struggle is an option. And so undertake that struggle as those who know it's worth it. Because the landscape has been opened up, that God has worked through history to get Jesus to that point in the cross, to get Jesus to that third day and see him raised, and to baptize into him, into his death, into his resurrection, and into his future, a people that will be his for all time. God's eternal plan and scheme is to make life with his Christ the obedience of loving children, open and possible where it used to be closed and impossible, open and possible for you tonight where it used to be closed and impossible. And let me just push that home a little. This is addressed in all particulars to those who are believers. But it is addressed as those who, to those who understand that there is a volume one and a volume two and a, a choice to be made. If... You are one of those living quite clearly in volume one. You know that uh, the choices to open that door into volume two are not yet made by you. Then do something about it, please. 
Talk to me, talk to Maya and Martin, who will be here to pray after our service together. But be clear on what is being claimed. That there is a volume one, there's a volume two, and it is open to you to live differently. If you're able to take your eyes off yourself for a moment and follow the grain of Paul's own concern and passion, then we can say this as we close. The obedience that is life with God and comes from faith is possible, not because of law, but because of grace. This, tonight, is actually how grace worked out. And so praise be to God who worked that wonder. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your purposes are for all eternity. Your purposes include your will for all people. And so we ask that even as we struggle daily, almost moment by moment, with sin in our lives, we might be encouraged by the reminder that the very fact of our struggle shows our freedom a freedom that has been won by Christ into whom we are baptised and in whom we live. Strengthen our weak and feeble steps, we pray, and give us a renewed confidence in what your grace has done for us. Amen.